Would you please join me as we stand together for the reading of God's Word and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. If you don't happen to have a Bible uh, with you today, I would encourage you to take one of the chairback Bibles. That should be in a chair nearby you and you'll find this morning's text on page 5. If you felt last week's text, which was all of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5, 58 verses, was something like a spiritual sprint, you may feel as though we're on a biblical crawl this morning as we only look at the first eight verses of chapter 6 in our continuing study of the first book of the Bible. The book of Proverbs talks about suitable words and likens them to apples of gold. And part of the reason that we're slowing down this morning in our study of Genesis is because what we're going to see this morning, if you have eyes to see and if you have ears to hear, are apples of gospel gold that we'll reach by the end of the text. So let me go ahead and read it for us and then pray for our time and we will begin together. Let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and there was every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and birds and creeping things from the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah also found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? And the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to you now, thanking you that you are God who speaks to us. We pray that you would speak to us now by your perfect and powerful word, that we would hear its truth, that we would understand its meaning, that we would heed it and what it means for our very life, that we might exalt you, that we might enjoy you, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, you may be seated. I don't tend to be a person that watches the news cycle and pays attention to the 24-hour news channels very often. As I tend to tell my wife, I don't need the news to tell me that the world is a very evil place. But every so often I do venture into the news headlines, and I did such a thing this week as I came across a story that was altogether shocking, one of those things that you tend to find, don't you, in the news world in which we live, altogether horrifying and strikes the soul with incredible sorrow and sadness. It was the account of a man who committed a most heinous crime. He was evidently frustrated with his two-year-old daughter for not falling asleep fast enough one evening. So he struck her in the head, took her out to a nearby park covered in snow, and left her there overnight. 
Investigators later on found a small trace of footprints surrounding where she lay that park, in the park, and subsequently they found that she had been frozen to death. And it's one of those stories, isn't it, that you tend to come across in the world we live in, which reminds you of the sad consequences, the tragic consequences of the fall. And if you're anything like me, you hear of such a story, you read of such a headline, and there's this spiritual sadness, there's this grief that strikes the soul, there's this inner cry out for justice. How long, O oh Lord, until such things are done away with? If you've ever had that experience before, uh, you know something of God's heart in our passage today. Because outside of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, few texts in Scripture so vividly portrays God's heart in the face of reckless iniquity that covers the earth. It's a text that's meant to show us how God feels about man's sin. It's a text, however, that has often been made famous in Christian circles more because of its confusion and its mystery. One commentator says this present section of Genesis has been the subject of debate for centuries. Another says it's one of the thorniest in Old Testament interpretation. Perhaps my favorite commentator on Genesis says this section is one of the most difficult passages in the entire book of Genesis. It's an odd, strange episode that on the surface appears to be mythical or legendary. I know quite a few of you might feel that way because I can't begin to explain the number of conversations I've had in recent weeks and months. People finding out that we were soon to preach through Genesis saying, I can't wait until you get to Genesis chapter 6. Why? Because God's going to erase evil? No. Who are those Nephilim in verse 4? That's an okay curiosity as we're going to see in a few minutes. But what we need to recognize from the very outset of this text is what we're meant to see as a clear and undeniable truth about the condition of man and the heart of God. We're meant to see God's wrath against man's sin. And maybe you notice, kids, did you notice as I read the text how, there, how important seeing is in the passage? You might look down at verse 2 and verse 5. Again, these two sections, these two sections of four verses in our passage marked off with someone seeing something. So we're going to walk through it in two simple headings along the way as we see God's wrath against man's sin. By the end, we get to that rich gospel truth, the good news that there is a way of escape from the judgment that our sin deserves. So if you weren't with us last week, we did call, uh, cover all of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5. We saw the war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman truly begin. This cosmic battle for the ages has commenced as the seed of the serpent, Cain, committed the first crime, the first murder in all of Scripture as he killed his brother Abel. And what we saw as the text continued is that this sinful son built a sinful city. And then by the end of chapter 5, what we find out is that the entire human race is a sinful one. As people are dying, suffering the consequences and curse of sin. By the end of chapter 5, and as we make our way into chapter 6, it very much feels in the narrative of Genesis that the serpent has the whole world in his hands. And we want to pay attention now in the first four verses of our text to what the sons of God saw. 
Look at verse 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. You remember that old kid song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see? The book of Genesis could be your kind of proof text for the truthfulness of that song. Do you remember the first sin all the way back, just a few chapters before in Genesis chapter 3? Eve taking the fruit. What was one reason she took the fruit? The lust of the eyes. As she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, and so she took it. Pay attention as Genesis continues to what happens when people see something attractive and beautiful. The consequences tend to be quite dire. And here we find these sons of God seeing daughters of men, finding them beautiful, finding them attractive, finding them pleasing to the eye, and they too took many wives for themselves. So the question we want to ask here right at the outset is who are these sons of God? There's three different views historically on who these sons of God are. Number one is that they're demonic tyrant kings. It's actually a view that has dominated recent Old Testament scholarship on the book of Genesis. Demonic tyrant kings, Psalm 82 verse 6, talks about rulers and kings in the earth as sons of the Most High. It wasn't at all uncommon in the ancient Near Eastern culture to refer to rulers and kings as sons of the gods. So maybe it's demonic tyrant kings. Some of you know that the second view, which certainly is the oldest view, is that they're just fallen angels. Uh, The main reason biblically for this view is that the only other time the phrase the sons of God shows up in all of Scripture is in the book of Job. Three times it shows up, and clearly there it refers to angels. It was the earliest interpretation of Jewish commentators on this passage. And what we're told also is that it's something that eventually fell out of favor with many Jewish commentators. It was very much uh, a view propagated by this extra-biblical book named First Enoch. So maybe these fallen angels took a physical body to themselves. Maybe these fallen angels inhabited a human being. Whatever it was is that you had fallen angels commingling with the daughters of men. And another way that this might be taken and understood rightly is that you see in verse two or verse one and two, if you look down again is that there seems to be this clear distinction between the sons of God and the rest of humankind, these daughters of men. So maybe it's demonic tyrant kings, maybe it's fallen angels, or thirdly, maybe it's the sons of Seth. This is the longest tenured view in our heritage, in our tradition. You'll find it in Martin Luther, you'll find it in John Calvin. You remember last week we said this war was on between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We said you could often kind of articulate and even illustrate that battle as the sons of Cain and the sons of Seth, the evil line and the godly line. So what the view says here is that the sons of God are little more than the sons of Seth who are sinfully intermarrying with the sons of Cain, that they're mixing the pure godly race. And one reason that they also support for this view biblically is Jesus himself said that angels never marry. Angels aren't given in marriage, so surely it's not then fallen angels. So I wonder which view you think is right. Demonic tyrant kings, fallen angels, or sons of Seth. Well, to some degree, the entirety of my pastoral ministry has been bouncing back and forth between view two and three. Depending on the week, 
Depending on when you ask me, I might say something of a sympathy to view two fallen angels or something of a sympathy to view three sons of Seth. This week, I'm sympathetic to for view two, some variation of it being fallen angels. What we have in this moment is this unprecedented, unviolated intrusion of evil into the earth where you have this commingling of sin producing this incredible disruption in the world. And the point that I want to encourage you in this morning with things like this is regardless of which view you take of who the sons of God are, you still get to the same point in the end. This reckless lawlessness, this flagrant flaunting of God's law was marking the world at that time where one lust of the eye in the Garden of Eden has now given birth to this titanic lust as men are taking wives for themselves flouting God's creation ordinance in the covenant of marriage. You even see next week, uh, Cain's sin in murdering his brother Abel has given birth by verse 11 of chapter 6, this incredible violence and murderous intent filling the earth. So far from dissuading you from honest curiosity or sincere inquiry, I'm just trying to remind you when you come to texts like this, don't get wrapped up with the supernatural, somewhat mysterious nature of the passage and miss the actual point, the essential iniquity marking the earth at that time. So great was the sin. Notice what God says in verse 3. He says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years. This verb abide, it only shows up here in all of the Old Testament. as a wide range of what it could mean. It could mean protect, it could mean shield, it could mean strive, it could mean remain. The idea here is, is God is saying there are 121, or 120 years left before my judgment will flood this earth. There's 120 years left for mankind to repent, to turn from their evil. No longer will my spirit protect them from the judgment that their sin deserves. So great is God's wrath that it's going to pour forth in a mighty flood, a torrent of condemnation should they not turn from their sin. It's as though God is saying, I'm not going to stand back forever as mankind acts a fool before me. And even only heightening the darkness and the mysterious nature of the text is verse 4, where we're told that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the son, the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So who are the Nephilim? Well, their name just means fallen ones. They show up another time in the Bible. Did you know that? Numbers chapter 13. Kids, you remember the story? Moses sends out these spies to kind of scout out the promised land, and they return and deliver their report to, Mo their report to Moses, and they say to Moses, Moses, there is no way we can go in and overthrow the people in that land. Did you know that there are Nephilim there? This giant race of mankind before whom we are just like grasshoppers. And if you know the way the descendants of the Nephilim work out in the rest of the Bible, there's something like the great, 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 great ancestors of the most famous giant in all of Scripture named Goliath. So clearly it's men of renown, warriors of violence, men of strength and stature before the world. They were a man, uh, they were a race that belonged to this age of violence and iniquity. 
These strong warriors that were full of stature before people's eyes. Men of great repute and popularity in a sinful, violent world. And students, I wonder if you have longings or dreams or goals to stand out in the world. To stand tall before the eyes of your peers. Now what you need to know is that you might stand tall before the eyes of the world. But what matters most is how you'll stand before God. When he summons you to his judgment seat. That you might stand out as great in the world. And be little before the Lord. Or you could stand out as nothing. Quite small in the eyes of the world. Yet quite great in the eyes of of the world. Man's sin is permeating the earth to such a degree that God says soon judgment is going to fall. All from what the sons of God saw. So what did God himself see? Well notice in verse 5 through 8 what God saw. I would imagine that many of you have read before, maybe scanned your way through the diary of Anne Frank. You know, this story in July of 1942, 13-year-old Anne and her family goes into hiding in Amsterdam when the Nazis would come looking for the Jews that they're trying to exterminate. She and her family and those friends close by with her would hide behind this sliding bookcase. And around that exact same time when they began to go into hiding, she received a diary. And for two years, she recorded her experiences, her thoughts as a young teenage girl, and two years after they went into hiding, she recorded an entry that was written down two weeks before she and those with her were captured and carted off to a concentration camp where 15-year-old Anne Frank died. And in this diary entry, two weeks before she was captured, she was remarking about this kind of amazement in her own heart that she had kept her ideals even though evil surrounded her to a great extent. And what she said at the end uh, of that entry is altogether striking. She says, I keep these ideals because in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. That's a sincere, youthful optimism, isn't it? People are really good at heart. But we do know the Bible paints a different picture, don't we? Look at verse 5. What did God see? The Lord saw... That the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his art was only evil continually. Uh, you might not know this, throughout the ages in our own Presbyterian tradition, when pastors and theologians have wanted to prove the doctrine of original sin, that every person is born sinful. One of their most favorite passages is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Because look at the back half of verse 5 again. Notice how even Moses, as he's talking about what God saw, he's amplifying the evil when he says, Every intention of the thoughts of his art was only evil continually. It's not just sinful actions that people commit, children. Sin is found not just in what we do, what we think, what we say, what we desire. So if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, I wonder what you think about this truth that we believe, that every person is born sinful, from birth, deserving of God's judgment. Maybe that's a, a harsh view of people 
of boys and girls, of men and women. Maybe it's even a horrifying view, as someone told me once, of mankind. But don't you know that no one is teaching little toddlers to bite each other? But they do. No one's teaching the little kids to take what doesn't belong to them. But they do. No one's teaching them to cry out in anger when something doesn't go their way. But they do. No one's teaching them to complain whenever they want something they're not getting. But they do. What does God see? Total corruption, doesn't He? Every intention of their heart was only evil continually. So, the sons of God saw the attractiveness of the daughters of men. They acted on what they saw. God sees this total corruption in the earth. What's God going to do? What's His action going to be? Well, notice the twofold response, if you will, of verse 6 and 7. First, we need to see God's pain. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. And then if you scan down to the end of verse 7, we're told that the Lord says, I'm sorry that I have made them. Regret, grief, sorrow. These aren't words that we typically attribute to God. God is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the transcendent being in the universe who doesn't change in Him. There's no shifting shadow. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But here is Moses saying God regretted that He created man. It may surprise you to find out in the ministry that God has given me, by some measure, the most common question I've ever gotten on biblical interpretation relates to how do you interpret the regret of God in Genesis chapter 6. More than any other question I've ever gotten, how do you interpret God's sorrow over mankind whom He created? Well, we do always have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, don't we? The Bible is quite clear, even using this exact same language in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29, that God is not a man that he should regret. God is not a man that he should have sorrow. God is not a man that he should repent. Well, the text is telling us, the totality of Scripture is telling us that God no more has sorrow and regret like we do than he has eyes like we do, even though, notice verse 8, speaks about the eyes of the Lord. Moses is using these human words, these human images, these human emotions to help us understand the heart of God as he looks out on the sin in the world. How does God think about the sin permeating his creation? How does God look upon the sin of man that is wreaking havoc in all the land? The idea here is righteous rage, holy hatred of what he sees. I wonder if you have a doctrine of God that understands that he hates sin, that his eyes are indeed too pure to look on evil, that he can't stand in its presence without his righteousness and holiness demanding justice fall on sinful people. You're meant to understand that God doesn't take sin lightly. So notice not just God's pain, but God's plan in verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Now you want to pause there and make sure you understand the full weight of what God has just said by way of what His plan is regarding this sin. It is a terrifying thing. It is a troubling 
thing. It is a fearful thing to find the God of all love and goodness, the God of steadfast love and long-suffering, the God who is slow to anger, get to a point where he says, enough. Judgment is on the way. I wonder if he might not be saying such a thing over your life today, a life full of sin and unbelief, and he cries out to you today from his word and spirit, enough. Man's sin was great. God's judgment would thus be even great as it falls upon those who deserved it, which was everyone. Is there a way to escape God's wrath on man's sin? There's a way to be rescued from the judgment that every sinner deserves. You know, I grew up in the, what's been called the golden age of Disney animation. I watched all those movies when I was a younger child and thought eventually I supposed I'd grow up enough that I wouldn't watch them anymore. Then I had children who want to watch them. I suppose I was going to grow up enough to where the songs wouldn't be stuck on my mind. And then I have children who like to listen to them. I now suppose eventually I'm going to grow up to a sufficient degree that I won't watch the movies or sing the songs anymore, but then I suppose I might have grandchildren that I want to watch the movies or sing the songs. So in a genuine sense, for the last 25 years, my favorite Disney animated movie, The Lion King, has been a faithful friend for almost three decades. And if you know that movie, you might recall this scene somewhat towards the end when Rafiki takes Simba on this kind of wild, reckless chase through the woods because he wants to take Simba to this small pond, and Simba eventually gets there, and Rafiki says, look into the pond. And Simba's like, I can't see what you want me to see. And then Rafiki stretches out his hand and says, look harder. Simba looks harder. And then he sees what he's supposed to see, and everything changes in Simba's life. We've seen what the sons of God saw, We've seen what God saw. I wonder if you see the essential lessons that are meant to change our life today from this passage. I wonder if you've looked harder to see why this passage might indeed be full of apples of gospel gold. Well, I want to help you look harder as we begin to close. We've got a little bit more time left, a little bit more text left. I want to help you look harder as we see just three essential truths from this passage as we rework our way back down from verse 1 to verse 8. The first thing that you must see is see the corruption of marriage that reveals the sin of a society. See how the corruption of marriage reveals the darkness of a society. As the marriage goes, the family goes. As the family goes, the church goes. As the church goes, the society goes. What is it that causes God to say, my spirit will no longer protect these people. Judgment will fall on them surely in 120 years. It's the complete corruption of his creation ordinance of covenant marriage. And students and kids, you want to pay attention to what the eyes saw from the sons of God taking these daughters of men. Why did they choose multiple wives? Not because these women loved God, but because they looked good. Not because of personal piety, but because of physical beauty. Caring nothing for one's devotion to the Lord. And if you want an idea of just how far gone these marriages were, look back at verse 4 and something that's very easy to miss. 
when it's talking about the children born from these corrupt marriages. What Moses tells us is when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. Now, we've already seen this with Adam and Eve, but the typical way that Genesis will talk about the procreative work between a husband and a wife, it'll say something like, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they had a child. Or such and such husband knew his wife so and so, and they had a child. But you see how verse 4 doesn't say that? This Hebrew word that speaks of intimacy and marital relations and sexual relations. Here, it's actually in its verbal form in Hebrew, uh, very crass and very base. It's to go into, to take by force. So corrupt are these marriages. A society is always in a bad place, isn't it? When they condone sin in marriage and condemn holiness in marriage. God's saying, my spirit won't last much longer with this society. Do you ever think that in our society that continues to condone sin, condemn holiness in marriage, that God himself may have not said of our very beloved nation, my spirit will not strive much longer with that people. The corruption of marriage tends to reveal the darkness of a society. You want to know, secondly, of course, quite forcefully in this passage, you want to see the totality and certainty of God's condemnation of sin. The totality and certainty of God's condemnation of sin. Look again at verse 7. Do you see this terrifying image that God uses in his plan? He says, I'm going to blot out all things. Blot out is this unique verb in Hebrew. It shows up later on in the Bible in 2 Kings uh, chapter 21. When God is pronouncing his judgment on Jerusalem, he uses the same verb, ESV translates it differently, but paints the picture quite powerfully. There God says, I will judge Jerusalem, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So kids, just as you might wipe a dish clean of food, God's going to wipe the earth of all of its sinful people. Just like you might erase marks from a whiteboard, so is God going to erase all the evil in the world. So great is God's condemnation of sin. Again, we want to ask, is there any escape from the wrath and judgment and condemnation our sin deserves? I remember one time hearing one of the most influential preachers in the world explain why he tends not to preach from the Old Testament. And he said it's because the God of the Old Testament is not a God of grace. And if you ever hear someone say such silliness, just say, have you read Genesis chapter 6, verse 8? You notice how the verse begins? But. I've told you this before, and I'll tell you this again. There is no greater gospel conjunction in all the Bible than the word but. Like a shooting star on a black night, an oasis in a cracky desert, an island haven amidst the chaotic sea is this word but. The totality of sin leading to a certainty of judgment. Notice verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word for favor really would be better translated grace. 
It's often translated such in the, New Test- um, the Old Testament. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How is it that any person can escape the wrath of God that's due to them for their sin? Only by grace finding them. So the final thing you want to see is not just the corruption of marriage, not just God's condemnation on sin. You want to see how God's consolation comforts undeserving sinners. And you might ask, Jordan, why do you use the word consolation? I do because it's actually been used already of Noah. Readers and hearers of Noah already have heard his name before. Just flip back to the end of chapter 5 when we get this genealogy moving us from Adam to Noah. We find out in verse 28 that his father was named Lamech. This is the good, righteous Lamech, not the lamentable Lamech that was spoken of in chapter 4. And look at what he says of his son Noah when Noah is born. Look at verse 29 of chapter 5. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. I do think console or consolation is a better translation of that term. This one shall bring us comfort from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You see how it's a prophetic statement of a deliverer? In the same way, at the beginning of chapter 4, when Eve gets a son, Cain, she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And surely she thought she had gotten the offspring who was going to crush the serpent's head. Here is Lamech speaking a word, a prophetic word over his son Noah, thinking finally the one who's going to crush the serpent's head has come. This is the one that will comfort us from the curse. This is the one that will bring us rest and a relief from our toil. This is the one who will bring us consolation from all the evil. Noah, whose name just means rest and relief. But we know the story of Noah, don't we? Just have to turn a couple pages over, and you find out Noah himself is a sinner, undeserving of God's grace, that he, of course, isn't the promised seed who's going to crush the serpent's head. So what we need is another, maybe the true and better Noah, Jesus Christ, the one who would be the consolation of Israel, that one who would be the comfort of God's people. As he hangs there on the cursed tree of Calvary, he hangs there to take the penalty of sin into his very heart. He hangs there to take the flood of judgment into his soul. He is blotted out so that if you turn from your sin and trust in him, your sin is erased. He is blotted out. So that if you turn from your sin and trust in him, you'll find comfort from the curse. He was blotted out. So that if you turn from your sin and trust in him, you will find the consoling, comforting work of the Spirit guiding you to eternal life and everlasting forgiveness because of the work of this deliverer and redeemer who was to come. How is it that any person, that any sinner can escape the great condemning wrath of God, the judgment due their sin. It's always been the same, hasn't it? God's grace finding his people. So I wonder today if his grace in Jesus Christ has found you yet. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that you would find us in Jesus Christ this morning. We pray that we would indeed behold the glory of Jesus 
who is the payment for our sin, who is the sin bearer who himself became a curse that we might find your comfort. Father, help us to recognize the full weight of our sin and what it deserves. Help us to flee to Christ, to close with Christ, that we might be found righteous, that we might be made righteous in him. We thank you for your grace. Forgive us, Father, for our small thoughts about your love and mercy. Increase our affection for you that we might indeed abound in gratitude and thanksgiving. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God's grace is the only way we can escape God's wrath. And so let us stand as we sing together hymn number 467, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. Mm -hmm.